Dr. Nicholas Vogelsang is a master clinical investigator, and to make an important point, he recently published a case report in the September 10th issue of the Journal of Clinical Oncology of a 49-year-old woman who presented with a primary renal cell cancer and widespread metastatic disease who's now been managed for 28 months with a sequence of systemic agents, and her primary remains intact and is smaller, calcified, and exophytic. I met with Dr. Vogelsang for his take on the cutting edge of this field, and he began our conversation by commenting on the patterns of care study, which he helped us develop, and a question we presented in the survey that addressed the very same issue being made by his JCO case report. My thinking on this one was that this is a small lesion in the kidney, and it's clear cell. Removing the primary would likely have no major benefit and you probably treat the primary with sunitinib. More and more of us are seeing this to be the case. With long-term follow-up, many of these primaries regress to a great extent. So I don't really feel the need to go after the kidney. In addition, you know, pathologic fracture still has to be treated, and bone lesions are still not good. So at this point, the primary becomes a non-issue, in my opinion, and I see that It's interesting that so many of the oncologists are still going right after the primary lesion. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I've done quite a few interviews with renal cell investigators, and up until the last couple months, that just never even came on my radar until we did these interviews with the oncologists, and they were all asking about this. Up until that point, it seemed like every investigator I talked to said, well, we generally take out the kidney. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a sea change. There's now more and more of us who treat a lot of kidney cancer are seeing these patients where the primaries regress. We don't have proof yet. This is sort of at that level. It's not level one or level two evidence. It's level three, you know, where you have some series or it's even level four where in the last 10 patients I've treated. But I have now numerous patients who I just simply watch the primary and treat the metastatic disease, which was symptomatic and more life-threatening by far than the primary. I mean, it really is analogous, I think, to what's happening in colon and rectal cancer. And we're starting to actually see data where, and I don't know how much of this is a reflection of, you know, the new agents, Oxali and the biologics, but it seems like in that situation, a high fraction of patients are able to avoid having surgery. Although in renal, you have people always referring to the randomized trial data that demonstrated an advantage to nephrectomy. Do you think that's relevant today? Well, I don't. The two randomized trials are relevant, but they're irrelevant to the immunologic modifications that occur. And it's clear that there are some profound immunosuppressive factors produced by the primary we now call them myeloid suppressor cells. And they're a variant of T-cell suppressor cells. And they're pretty potent, but yet we now have papers published showing that sunitinib reverses the immunosuppression that occurs with that in those patients. We also have the papers from MD Anderson, Eric Jonash, and Dave Wood, suggesting that you can regress the primary. We have the Temsirolimus paper that was published at ASCO GU 2009, Ted Logan, reported that almost 40 to 50% of the primaries regress with temsirolimus. 
We've got Brian Reaney doing a prospective study at Cleveland Clinic of sunitinib in the primary. I've got a letter of the editor coming out in the JCO in a week or two, but just dramatic effect on the primary in the face of overwhelmingly symptomatic metastatic disease. All of the metastatic disease regressed, as did the primary. So more and more oncologists are having that both anecdotal experience but also an emerging body of literature suggesting that the urgency of removing the primary has diminished considerably. What about surgery once the patient's been treated with targeted agents, specifically VEGF TKIs like sunitinib? What do we know about the safety of removal primaries once that kind of therapy has been started? Well, there's two issues there. The first is that the TKIs are pretty safe. You can go into the surgery within days after the sunitinib is stopped. Obviously, the problem is more complicated with uh, Avastin-like drugs and the VEGF inhibitors, the direct antibodies, as their half-lives are so long. I don't know much about the VEGF trap molecule, but I suspect it'll be similar. So the issue is more a matter of intra-op bleeding than with the bevacizumab and wound healing directly. The issue of late complications, four weeks, five weeks later, is it right to start sunitinib? And the surgeons, guys like Lee Ellis and so on, have told me that, yeah, it's perfectly acceptable. And we in the urologic oncology world are really following the lead set by our colleagues in GI cancers because they're the ones that have been doing the hepatic resections and showing that it's safe and have really established the parameters. They don't use, however, the TKIs, although there's certainly exitinib and so on are being studied as replacements for bevacizumab. They're not big series, so we only really have the bevacizumab data. Let's talk a little bit about adjuvant therapy. And you know, we have this 57-year-old patient who has a renal mass that proves to be a grade 3 clear cell carcinoma, T3A, N0, M0. First of all, what would you say to a patient like that in terms of what to expect from the future in terms of prognosis, relapse rate, et cetera? Well, the relapse rate is up to eight years and beyond. So the patients have to be followed a long time. We had a big series in Illinois. We looked at all four or 5,000 cases treated in the state of Illinois. We extracted all the data for the American Cancer Society when I was president there. And we published a nice little monograph and had a few papers that came out in peer-reviewed literature. And the survival curve does not plateau until about eight years out. The T3s do not have even that same risk. They remain at risk perhaps a little longer. So you end up with about 40 to 50% of these patients ultimately relapsing. And it's hard to be more optimistic than that. Some of them in the more recent series, because of imaging and maybe some pathologic upstaging, in other words, they're looking more carefully at vascular invasion, these patients may have a better prognosis. But you're still dealing with about a 50% plus minus 10% relapse rate. So I guess one of the issues is how people feel about a patient like that participating in the current study, I guess, is still open, looking at serafinib, sunitinib versus placebo? 
Yeah, the Assure trial is recently been updated. Robert Uzo from Fox Chase is the principal investigator, and Dave Wood from MD Anderson is one of the co-investigators. And they sent around some slides that we reviewed at the SWOG meeting. And the problem is that we have a high rate, about 20-plus percent, of patients who are stopping drugs before the year is out. And it's generally for toxicity. There is also a certain percentage of patients who are refusing, and I think that number is in that rough range, you know, 15 20% that are refusing once they're randomized. Interestingly, refusal is both ways. Refusal is for the patients on placebo, refusing at about the same rate as patients randomized to the active drug. So it's still a tough randomization, but the study is going extremely well. It was over 1,300 patients in February, and they decided to expand it by another 600, so it'll go to 1,900 before they close. I think it's due to close in 2010. Are they seeing the number of events they need to see? It's just too early. I know one of my patients was on, was randomized to placebo, relatively, you know, intermediate risk, nine centimeter tumor, but not otherwise symptomatic. But he was randomized to placebo because he had absolutely no symptoms. So, you know, the code gets broken just simply by being an observant clinician. And he relapsed big time. He relapsed with uh, intramedullary spinal cord metastasis and a paralysis as his presenting symptom of metastatic renal cell. Wow. Very sad and tough case. So, you know, when you explain to these patients that a relapse is almost inevitably going to be life-threatening, if not immediately life-threatening, many patients are not so interested in being randomized to placebo. Problem is, we have no data to say that serafinib, pseudotinib is going to help that. So we're really in equipoise, and it's a good study. Although it's interesting that 29% of the oncologists said that for a patient like this, they would utilize sunitinib off-study. Well, you know, the real world is like that. And this is what you see. You see patients who say, I've got an 8, 9, 10 centimeter tumor. I've got vascular invasion. I'm T3. They can go to the websites. They can pick up the Catan nomograms and the Mayo nomograms and go, oh, my God, you mean I've got a 60% chance of relapse? I want to have something now. And many times the doctors will walk them through the same data. So I can see that number easily. Is that something that, you know, you would consider doing yourself? You know, Mike Atkins and I had a discussion about this when Sunitinib first came out. And I said, yeah, you know, I would at least consider it. And I remember Mike getting sort of upset at me and saying, how could you possibly do non-evidence-based medicine? And I said, Michael, the answer isn't me. The answer is what my patients are able to understand. And when the patients understand fully, you can say, look, there's no data that this will matter. But if you're insisting on a treatment, this would be not crazy. How often in this situation do patients say, what would you do if it were you or somebody in your family? Well, you know, this comes down to this whole issue of medical ethics that Chris Doherty and I at University of Chicago have talked about for decades. You cannot abstract yourself as you would like. And so when patients insist that you go into that situation, I carefully review the side effects of sunitinib. And usually I can talk them away from at least opting for drug right away. I can say, look, hypertension, diarrhea, skin rash, this is not a benign drug. This is not like taking a blood pressure pill. You better be really thoughtful about this. 
And I said, your standard of care is still for me to watch you closely. And usually I can get the patients to be randomized to the study. How often do patients actually say to you, Doc, what would you do if it were you? Oh, I'd say at least half the time. We actually had an abstract that was accepted as a poster for ASCO, which we asked docs as relates to colon cancer adjuvant that, and they said that also more than half the time they were asked. But I thought it was interesting that most of them said they'll give an answer, you know, usually with a major caveat, as you just said, will you answer it or do you refuse to answer? No, I try to be as into the patient as I can. I usually spend a lot of time talking about their social structure, about their wife, about the kids, you know, about where they live, what their social structure support is, what their goals in life are, what their end-of-life issues are. And at the end of the time, I say, look, I think you should join the study. They go, I really don't want to join the study. I go, well, if that's the case, then I think given your life story that I've just heard, I would recommend And let's just say in this case, I would say I would recommend against having an off-protocol treatment. It is most acute with the stage B colon cancers that we're still uncertain as to what we should do for stage Bs. But for kidney, we're equally in equipoise. Can you talk about what you perceive as the factors that would be likely to yield a positive result from VEGF TKIs in the adjuvant setting as opposed to factors that would be likely to sort of argue against it being beneficial? Well, the two studies that are out there, both are looking at serafinib for one year with the assumption that serafinib was going to be less toxic than sunitinib. However, we now know that that's probably not the case, that these TKIs have cumulative low-grade, grade 2 toxicities that really become annoying to the patient's the longer they're on the study or the longer they're on the drug. The SOURCE, S-O-R-C-E, trial in England was randomized to placebo one year or three years, and that trial is really struggling. And whether that's because of the three years or just because of the drug toxicity that was underestimated is unclear. I know that Pfizer is trying to do an adjuvant trial straight up of placebo versus sunitinib. And I also know that Glaxo is kicking around a adjuvant trial with their new pizopinib. I think the only way to know who's going to benefit is if we had some sort of gene signature or, you know, like in breast cancer, the oncotype, to say, look, this is what really predicts for high risk of recurrence. But we don't have that for kidney cancer, and therefore we struggle at all levels to define what the best adjuvant therapy is. Let's talk about the issue of delaying or expecting follow-up of patients without systemic therapy, particularly as in one of the cases we presented here of a patient who, after they had their humerus fixed, were asymptomatic. Is that a strategy that you utilize, and in what situations do you do it? I do it. In fact, I'm going to see a lady tomorrow who I recommended it be observed. She has been followed very closely, and She's about five or six years out. She, about a year ago, developed lung nodules that were really small, and the radiology report was vague. And the referring oncologist sort of got blindsided. He didn't get the impression that these were new and that they were consistent with metastatic disease. I mean, you know how these words come off of radiology reports. 
So then when he repeated this scan at her six-month interval, they said, well, the lung nodules previously seen are now growing. And he goes, mm, you know, you might imagine he'd like to strangle the radiologist. But at that point, she got all scared and came looking for second opinions. But yet, by the time I saw her, she had seven millimeter lung nodules, absolutely asymptomatic. She's overweight. She has some coronary disease. She's an ex-smoker. And I told her, at least give me another three months before I place you on a TKI. I see no need for you to be treated urgently. So for the selected patients, particularly those with the really slow-growing, small-volume lung nodules, I'm very comfortable watching. And I'm pleased to see that my fellow clinical investigators are at least saying that, not maybe a majority, but are saying it in a plurality of the answers. So I think many of the practicing oncologists are perhaps a little too willing to jump into TKI therapy. I'd say, you know, make certain you establish the tempo of the disease. Now, for patients who've had a serious medical complication of the metastatic disease, like where the patient has had a pathologic fracture, I'm reluctant to just watch those patients. I'm really willing to watch lung nodules or retroperitoneal lymph nodes. I'm not so willing to watch liver and bone metastases. What's the longest you've been able to follow a patient without treatment with metastatic disease? Interesting question. So I'll tell you the story of one of my really, really sweet guys. He had bilateral renal cells. The first one was a papillary, resected with partial nephrectomy. The second one was a clear cell, resected with partial nephrectomy. He had an aortic aneurysm repaired, mild hypertension, mild renal dysfunction, creatinine's 2, 1.8. He had a retroperitoneal recurrence, biopsy proven. Surgeon went in, tried to resect it, but because of the fibrosis from the aortic aneurysm, could not get it out. I've been following him for four and a half years. Wow. And the mass with MRI and CT scan has not changed at all. He's got significant hypertension. He's got significant peripheral vascular disease. And I've told him, I said, I just don't see any need to treat you. I can't make you any better than you are right now. He's still playing softball, sees his grandkids, you know, and is perfectly asymptomatic. So that's the longest I've done it. Hmm. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about the selection of therapy. And we actually had a case that really didn't fit exactly into poor risk disease, but it was sort of intermediate risk disease. This is the lady who, she's elderly, 75, who fractured right. mm-hmm. and has some other rib lesions, but otherwise perfectly asymptomatic. So now this patient wouldn't really be qualified or wouldn't fit into the category of having poor risk disease. No, she's a good risk patient. And it's interesting, the clinical investigators said 38% would be willing to observe them. But I think the practicing oncologists probably have it right that about 80% said they would go with sunitinib and the remaining only about 7% said that they would follow the patient. Most said either sunitinib, serafinib, or one of the mTOR inhibitors. That would sort of be my impression. I just get the sense that the bone metastases patients, although they never come out in a prognostic multivariate analysis as being clearly adverse, generally tend to be a worse-acting population. Now, up until just about now, bevacizumab hasn't really been alternative, and now that it's received FDA approval, it's out on the table 
How do you think bevacizumab with interferon or maybe even bevacizumab alone is going to fit into non-protocol therapy at this point? Well, it's a million-dollar-plus question, and I think it's going to come down to highly individualized decisions. The evidence in favor of sunitinib is overwhelming, and the evidence is, I think, well-defined. The sunitinib arm reached a median survival of 26 months, granted that it was a carefully done study. Serafinib is acceptable, but most of us believe that the PFS is somewhat diminished. Don't know quite why that is. Bev interferon was clearly, at least in a non-direct comparison, was better than serafinib. You know, in the CLGB, Bev interferon PFS hit around nine months. In the Avorin trial, it hit around 10 months, 10, 11 months in the good risk patients. So it doesn't appear to be inferior to the sunitinib regimen. I'm intrigued because, as I said at the ASCO discussion session, it may well be that Bev interferon preserves sensitivity to sunitinib. And what we saw with the Avorin data was that patients who were treated initially with Bev interferon and who went on to get sunitinib second or third line had an excellent median survival and an excellent PFS. So I'm not so concerned about what I put first as that all the patients get all the drugs. And that's what we're seeing in colon cancer as well. As long as the patients get IFL and Fulfox and Cetuximab and Bevacizumab, they're probably going to have an excellent PFS and overall survival. But for those patients who can't or don't get those, this survival diminishes. And I think that's what we're mostly evolving to. So does it matter if you get Bev interferon first or sunitinib first? I don't think it probably does. There's just no direct head-to-head comparison is the problem. You mentioned pizopinib. Can you talk about what we know about that agent, what was presented at ASCO, and where you think things are heading? Yeah, Dr. Sternberg was the presenter, and that study is a very nice study. It was similar to the randomized discontinuation trial that Dr. Retain first developed with serafinib. So we had patients who, if they responded, would stay on the drug, but for those who progressed, they were discontinued. But for those who were stable, they could stay on. That was one study design. And then the other is the placebo versus pizopinib, and that's what Cora presented. The placebo versus pizopinib with crossover allowed. And with that, pizopinib looks to be equally good for PFS and overall response rate, perhaps slightly less overall response rate than sunitinib. Now, again, you know, I'm not supposed to compare apples to oranges. The studies weren't direct head-to-head, but in the absence of direct head-to-head comparative data, that's all we've got. And as I said, pizopinib looks to be as good as sunitinib, maybe a little bit more hepatic toxicity, maybe a little more bone marrow suppression, but we don't really know because we haven't seen the full publication yet. What about the tolerability? I've heard people say they believe that pizopinib is significantly less toxic than sunitinib, again, through indirect comparisons. I have heard the very same thing. The current study is pizopinib versus sunitinib. That study's open in U.S. oncology. It's open through many sites. 
It's going very well. I believe, I don't know the exact number, but I think they're projecting it to close in 2010. And obviously, it's going to be a registrational trial. Aveo, the other drug, has done the randomized discontinuation design, I believe. I may be mistaken on that. But they also have very powerful data suggesting that their drug looks not unlike sunitinib in first-line metastatic renal cell. So we have these, as I've said in my editorials, embarrassment of riches. And Bev interferon is one of those combinations that looks to be similar to, and not superior to, but looks similar to sunitinib. What about Bev alone? Well, the only data we have on Bevalone is from Jim Yang, the New England Journal of Medicine, and we have a little bit of data from Ron Bukowski in his randomized trial of Bev Erlotinib versus Bev. Small trial, but Bev alone, the PFS was about eight months plus. So Bev alone is clearly active agent. Jim Yang's New England Journal of Medicine paper 2003 showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only objective responders were in the Bev arm. They didn't really capture response very much because the patients progressed. At the very first sign of progression, they came off. But yeah, it's a good drug. The issue is this, that interferon has also got activity. And For those of us who are a little older, we remember when all we had was interferon, and we could get objective responders. We could get long-term objective responders, and the only five-year survivors in general were those people who got interferon and had an objective response. Its mechanism is probably anti-angiogenic, although it may be immunologic. It's probably got fibroblast growth factor inhibitory effects. So I tend to say if you got to give interferon and BEV, you're working not at the TKI, tyrosine kinase receptor inhibitor level, but you're probably acting on different mechanisms. That's why I'd like to believe, and trust me, that's a belief, not proof, that it would protect against resistance developing to the TKIs. What are your thoughts? This is a concept I've just recently heard, actually, when we had our think tank about the concept that in terms of the VEGF TKIs, optimal benefit is seen when you can, quote, get as much of the drug in a planned dose as possible. It kind of reminds me of some of the things that have been said about chemotherapy in certain situations, such as testicular cancer. Do you think that that sort of concept is real? Well, the data that we have are not definitive, but we do have some data on a large population of patients who got blood levels of sunitinib and showed that, yes, indeed, there was a strong correlation between blood level and that blood level correlated with the dose and the blood level in turn correlated to response and duration of response as well as survival. That was published in clinical cancer research. Then we have the continuous sunitinib data and the continuous sunitinib data is, I believe, due to come out next week or so in JCO. And Bernard Escudier is the first author. I'm senior author on that. That's a phase two study, That's right? That's a phase two. That actually just got EPUBed. I saw it. Ah, okay. And as I recall, our PFS was inferior to the four-week-on, two-week-off sunitinib, at least as published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Mozart. 
But on the other hand, it was a slightly worse prognostic group of patients. So not certain that, again, you can compare apples to oranges. Yeah, the median PFS was 8.2 months, survival 19.8. Right. On the other hand, I want to remind everybody that that was work done in the 2005-2006 era. And the only other agents we had then were serafinib as crossover. We didn't even have the mTOR inhibitors. And I suspect that the mTORs are going to improve the overall survival. So Pfizer, to its credit, has done a randomized phase two called the renal effect trial, which is intermittent standard 50 on four weeks off two weeks to this continuous. And I'm eager to see the results of that data. If you look at exposure, you know, area under the curve to the sunitinib active component, continuous should be as good as intermittent. Just we need more data. What would you speculate will happen, or what do we know from your phase two study about side effects? They're definitely diminished, but, you know, I'm a biased investigator. I look at my patients and go, hmm, this is going really well. I'm pleased with this toxicity parameter. I need to see a direct comparison, and I don't know what that's going to look like. I have gotten to the point in my practice where I will, if patients get toxic on the 50 and 2, 54 weeks, 2 off, I will just automatically drop them down to 37 and a half and try to keep them on that continuously. Another schedule I've been hearing a little bit about is a two-week one, one week off. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I saw that came up, and I was one of the docs who said I didn't think that was a very good idea. You know, again, there's many things we as oncologists can do to ameliorate toxicity. I would not do that. I think Duration of exposure is probably important, and continuously inhibiting the angiogenic signal from the kidney cancer cells to the normal endothelium, which is what sunitinib does, should be important, and it should be a continuous suppression of the angiogenesis. I recognize that theory is not practice. Let's talk a little bit about dealing with side effects and I thought maybe we could talk, because we've been talking a lot about sunitinib, we could talk a little bit about serafinib. One of the cases we presented is a patient who initially is treated with sunitinib, develops progressive disease, switches to serafinib. Its first cycle goes fine. However, on the second cycle, the patient develops grade 2 hand-foot syndrome with painful erythema and swelling of the hands and feet. And there are a number of possibilities about what to do with a patient like that. How would you generally approach that type of patient? Yeah, hand foot is a tough one. You know, I generally would try to do the usual supportive care things, protect the hands, make them wear gloves, emollients. Many patients will tell me that, yeah, I was unscrewing a cap in the kitchen or I had a trauma when I was trying to tighten a nut on my wife's stereo and suddenly I've got that blister that won't heal. So you have to remind the patients to be very careful. And so I try to walk them through as much as I can. But the hand-foot syndrome can be extremely debilitating. I mean, the feet particularly, patients can't walk well. They almost can't get out to do their everyday activities. So you have really no choice but to modify the dose. The good news is that you're probably, when you get that toxicity, 
is sort of like the epidermal growth factor receptor toxicity of acne. You can probably guarantee that you are getting the target. I wish I could say that for sure, but that's my belief. There's an interesting set of data that Dr. Schmettinger from Vienna has published showing that hypothyroidism, when it occurs with either sunitinib or serafinib, is an excellent predictor of PFS and overall survival. So truly hitting the target, the normal tissue target, in the case of thyroid, it's probably RET. And then in the case of skin, we don't know exactly what the target is. But we're hitting an off-target, so to speak. But if we're hitting an off-target, we also are probably hitting the on-target of the TKI in the endothelium. Any reason to think that just being hypothyroid might have an anti-tumor effect? (laughs) God, Neil, you must have read my review. Exactly. There is a large literature, quite large, in fact, dating from the 50s, that suggests that hypothyroidism does, in fact, convey a survival advantage to cancer patients. So is it true, true, and unrelated? Or is it true, true, and related? And we're going to need a lot more data to sort that out. So for practical purposes, what kinds of symptoms in terms of hand, foot, or maybe you have to factor in timing, I guess, do you need to see in order to actually start thinking about changing the dose? I need somebody to come in and complain to me on a weekly or biweekly frequency. And it's always somewhat challenging because many of my colleagues let their nurses see these patients. And call me old-fashioned, but I'd rather see the patients myself and assess the toxicity. I remember one fellow who complained bitterly of side effects, and yet whenever the nurse would see him, he would either minimize the side effects or he couldn't express what the side effects were. But they were you know, diarrhea, mild hypertension. There was this complex. And finally, I had heard enough. I said, okay, it's my time to see him. I've got to see him. And he convinced me that he couldn't tolerate 37.5 per day as a dose for sunitinib. I dropped him down to 25. And then he went on to stay on that a long time and had a nice response. So there may be some pharmacodynamic issues relating to CYP3A4 metabolism that we should be aware of. But you know what? We don't do that enough. And we need to be thinking that toxicity is not bad. Toxicity may be good. What about the issue of fatigue? I guess you see that more with sunitinib than serafinib. And how do you deal with it? Well, you know, Provigil has become a drug that I now prescribe more regularly than I used to. I believe that it is a dominant side effect of most of what we as oncologists do. If you really probe into any chemotherapy regimen, patients will say, yeah, it really makes me wiped out. It gives me, use the word chemo brain. But whatever it is we do, it causes fatigue. I was part of the fatigue coalition back when, I forget who was developing erythropoietin in you know, we knew that fatigue was a common accompaniment. We used to think, well, it must be the hemoglobin or something. It's far more than that. And I don't have good drugs or good solutions to it. It's interesting. The only randomized trials I've seen for fatigue have been exercise. And a mild, consistent exercise seems to reduce the rate of fatigue that patients complain about. 
Do you have any concept, again, in new thyroid patients about the pathophysiology of what's going on when people have fatigue? No, because you can chase your tail in the workup, as you know. You know, you do the TSH, it's a little elevated. You do the hemoglobin, it's 11 and a half. They do a little diarrhea. They may have all this usual stuff. It's always multifactorial. Some of it's just psychological. Is it a CNS effect of the TKIs? I don't know. It could be. Anything else that you saw in the survey that you want to comment on? Well, I think what I wanted to see, which I didn't exactly see, is this whole issue of third-line and fourth-line therapy. Right. We didn't ask about that. We didn't really dig into that. And, you know, that's sort of the new frontier. You know, like one of my patients said the other day during the middle of the recession, good is the new great. And in patients who are in third and fourth line, stable disease is the new objective response. I will take stable disease as long as I can. I don't like it. I'd much rather see an objective response. But with the mTORs all giving stable disease, I will take stable disease and keep them on the studies and keep them on the drugs as long as possible. So I'm seeing patients, you know, who go through first, second, third, fourth line. We're now seeing organized trials being conducted in third line studies. So I think that that's the key, that it's not the first line necessarily or even second line. We now have some regimens approved, sunitinib, serafinib, two mTORs, and now we got Bev interferon. You should use them all and keep your patients as stable as long as they possibly can. And then I use chemo at the end when I get gemcitabine and capecitabine regimens, and every once in a while I get lucky with those. So we shouldn't give up. 